Our scripture text this morning is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel 1, 1 and following. Being a holiday, I thought it might be appropriate to say something in terms of our patriotic responsibilities to our country. And I'm going to use Daniel and his three friends as uh, an example of how that functioned in Old Testament times. Our Lord, we're thankful and appreciative for the opportunity to share your word and what 
is important to us to see and what we do recognize is that your word speaks to us in our culture about everything that is involved in living in our world, including how we relate to government. And I pray that you'll help us. We're not anarchists. We're not rebels. We're not against this and against that. We don't try to upset the status quo. We don't advocate coups. We have a responsibility as God has ordained for each one of us where we're placed in the country in which we find ourselves. And we ask your blessing to give us discernment, wisdom, and understanding through the truth we're going to see today. We ask this firstly and foremost for your glory, but also for our good. And we praise thee and thank you for the country we live in. In Jesus' name, amen. Question, should believers be involved in politics? Hmm. There's indeed a lot of controversy about this very subject. Politicians and lawyers are on the bottom of the totem pole in terms of public belief in their credibility. Not many Christians relish the idea of having their names associated with a group of people who are viewed as liars, cheats, self-preserving, full of greed. So that's the first problem that we face when we talk about how Christians should relate to the subject of politicians. Second problem, and one which probably grew out of the first, is the direct teaching that has come from many pulpits to the effect that public service is beneath the Christian philosophy of serving Christ. This has often been taught hypocritically, by which I mean that preachers have long been saying that Christians can serve God in whatever vocational field, they may have expertise in, be it working in the shops, running a retail outlet, farming, factory work, accounting, whatever. But then, then, when it comes to the political arena, suddenly these same preachers pull back and suggest that politics is one area where Christians cannot serve God in good conscience. Some believe, no doubt, that the government is so corrupt, so full of greed, and undermined wheeling dealing that it is beyond hope and is also beyond regaining any kind of respect and support from the public. In all of this, we betray that we are sinking into a kind of fatalism in which we believe that the die is cast never to be reversed, and that all that is left to do for us as Christians is to weather the storm best we can, wait for the return of Christ. And when the Lord comes, we are told, then all the political kingdoms will be overthrown and justice will finally prevail. While it is true that the justice and equity of God's righteousness will never be totally obtained until the judgment of Christ's return. It is also true that Jesus taught his disciples, Occupy till I come. Luke 19, verse 13. 
This counsel was given in a parable to answer the people's expectation that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And Jesus told the parable of a nobleman who took a long journey into a distant country where he was crowned king and then returned. And before leaving, he gave gifts to his servants and told them, Occupy. NIV says, Use the gift, the gift that I've given to you, until I come back. The point being this. While Christ the Prince is away, and before he returns, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we as servants are to utilize the gifts that he has given to us to work for his benefit. Be it with one gift that you might have or with five. There's to be no idleness and certainly no fatalistic attitude which says, Ah, what's the use? Things are so corrupt that I cannot even make a dent in the system. Government, brethren, is not God. It does not have self-perpetuating, indestructible hold upon the things of the world. Governments come and go. None of them are invincible. God raises up nations. He brings nations down. So any nation that the wickedness and duplicity of politics is built into the system is therefore unchangeable. When we think that way, that's a false assumption. Christians in key positions can and do make differences, and it should not be assumed that if they do make a difference, they have somehow compromised their Christian integrity to do so. Daniel and his three friends demonstrate that that was not the case. And what is more, let us not assume that government is some evil invention of men designed to oppress the masses and to subjugate the people by a few elitists on the top. The Bible makes it clear that human government originated with God, is maintained by God, and serves a needful function in the rule of God. We would have anarchy without government. Sometimes government itself is anarchy. But by and large, it's given by God to maintain order. Just as the sociologists of our day have taught that marriage was the invention of civilized man, so they have taught that government originated with man. Both assumptions are wrong. Government grew out of the orderliness with which God himself operates. God is not a God of disorder or chaos, which man promote. This is why Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he rebuked them for their disruptive and chaotic worship services in which there was little or no decorum. God does not condone that in his church, nor in his world. Government officials, writes Paul, 
have been established by God. He is God's servant to do you good. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Romans 13, verse 2 and following. It might interest you to know that when Paul wrote that, to the church at Rome, he wrote it to a people living in the capital city of the Roman Empire, which at the time ruled three quarters of the known world through its emperors. And Nero was the emperor on the throne when he wrote that. Nero was a bloody tyrant who in particular singled out Christians as a political scapegoat for his own evil doings. He set fire to Rome by his own carelessness, and then he blamed the Christians, and the Christians were crucified on the Roman road as punishment for something they never did. But in writing this counsel to the believers at Rome, Paul does not blame government, but instead he sets before his readers God's intent in establishing the ruling authorities. If there are corrupt politicians, and there are, <laughs> we blame them. We seek to remove them from office. We do not blame the system and move into a fatalistic mindset in which we pronounce our anathema on all government and separate it from the realm of God's rule as though it were an entity outside the domain of God's kingdom powerful enough in its own right to thwart the will of God. No, it's under the control of God's kingdom, ordained by God himself. May I say the governments of men are always under the control of God. You say, oh, well, I know some governments that are pretty wicked. Our mind goes to Mussolini and Hitler and places like that, Stalin. Like I said, we blame the men that pervert what God has ordained. But we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. What is given by God is intended for our good. That evil men make evil use of God's good gifts is characteristic of all the gifts that God gives to men, not just government. And as Americans who have enjoyed a legacy of freedom under democratic rule, we should also note that Christianity has found a place of service to Christ in all kinds of governments, including those with the most despicable record with regard to human rights. Like I just illustrated to you, Paul was under Nero as emperor of the Roman Empire when he's writing these treatises to the Romans. Submit to the authorities that are over you. I have to say, the American Christians think that communism and fascism and despotism is uh, government of necessity that means it should be eliminated of any kind of Christian witness. Christian participation. No, 
or Christian freedom of worship. All over our world today, Christians are meeting everywhere in any kind of government, even those that are very dominant, very anti-God. So nothing could be further from the truth if we're starting to talk about, well, I can't serve God in this government or under this kind of authority and so on. Yes, it may be harder to witness. It may be more difficult to serve. It might require more care in when and how one worships God. But believers in all ages, in all, cult in all cultures, have found ways to serve God and promote their governments in whatever ways they could. In other words, things are never so evil that all light is extinguished. Even if it is but one faithful soul who refuses to hide his light under a bushel basket. In China, they have house churches meeting everywhere, although the government is atheistic. No time for God. Full of idolatry. And that can be said of all totalitarian places of government. Now this brings us to the case of Daniel and his three friends. Our text brings before us the disconcerting fact of Daniel's predicament. What's his predicament? He and his fr three friends are captives of Babylon. The nation of Israel was split into two separate entities after the death of King Solomon. And it was as a judgment from God on Solomon's duplicity in which he allowed his pagan wives to reintroduce idolatry into Israel and to turn his heart away from serving God alone. So Solomon's ministers carved up the kingdom. Ten tribes were established as the northern kingdom. And in that northern kingdom, they never had so much as one godly king in their history. Not one. And so God took them into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, which consisted of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, because of a number of godly kings interspersed with the wicked ones, it was able to forestall destruction until 586 B.C. It was at that time when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and besieged it, verse 1 of our text. King Jehoiakim was defeated, and Daniel was among the exiles who were carted off to Babylon. How wicked, how wicked a place was Babylon? Well, so wicked that John uses Babylon as a symbol of the whore in Revelation which seduces the kings of the world. An evil kingdom which is more wicked than all other kingdoms. This is the kind of government permitted to destroy the kingdom of Judah, the nation of his own people. And you might wonder, why? Why would God allow a more wicked nation to prosper over his own people? Well, the truth of the matter is the Babylon, wicked as it was, 
was wicked in ignorance. What I mean is it never had the word of God to instruct it in the path of righteousness. It never had any prophets from God to preach the truth to them. But Israel did. And we do. And when a nation has more light and then sins against the light of God's truth, God holds that nation more culpable for its apostasy when it turns away from God. Babylon was wicked. Israel was more wicked for having turned its back on God. Listen to Peter as he says it. He's speaking of apostates. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed. 2 Peter 2, verse 21. Say ignorance is bliss. Well, in the case of the Babylonians, their ignorance of God preserved them for a long time. But when God's people who know the truth turn their back on the truth, God says, uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm not going to tolerate that. Babylonian pagans that don't know anything, I'm going to be merciful towards them. You guys that know the truth and have known it for many years, and I've sent my prophets to you, and I've given my scriptures to you, you are not innocent. So what was Daniel and his friends to do now that they were captives in a pagan nation? Well, they were to act with the knowledge of God that God had given to them. Nebuchadnezzar ordered his court administrator to conscript members of the royal family of Judah and noblemen who were among the captives for his service in the government of Babylon. Daniel and his three friends were among that group. Verse 4 describes the kind of men that Nebuchadnezzar was looking for. It says right there, Young men, without any physical